Hello and welcome to Rewind Design. I am your host and also local interior designer up here in Georgian Bay and Muskoka, Katie McNabb. I am the founder of Rewind Design. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, thank you so much for tuning in. You've landed in season two of the podcast, which is focusing on environmental issues around cottage country. So we're going to talk a lot about protecting our shorelines, talk a lot about the architecture of the area and how we can build better build green, build sustainable, lots of stuff like that. This season, season two, has actually been funded generously by the Georgian Bay Land Trust in the form of their King Family Bursary. So I just wanted to say a big shout out to the Georgian Bay Land Trust and a big thank you for supporting me in this venture. Today's episode I'm super excited for. We have I always say we have an amazing guest, but this week we have a great guest who I am so happy to have interviewed and connected with. His name is Scott Weir, and he is a cottager from Point of Barrel, and he also is an architect that works at ERA Architects in Toronto. So they do a lot of adaptive reuse, restoration, heritage conservation buildings. So they work all across Canada, and they actually have worked on I think he said like 40 different cottage properties in the archipelago, which is incredible. So I don't need to say too much about this interview, except I'm really excited. And it's really, really funny. When I first started this venture, I was approached by a few people saying, hey, I love what you're doing. Love that you're into the history of this area and the architecture. You should really speak to Scott. And this happened so many times that I lost count. Like so many people from Point of Barrel told me to reach out to him and I finally did. We finally connected. I met him at his home in Toronto. We had a great interview and I'm just so, so grateful to have connected with him. So we will be referencing some projects. So if you'd like to look at photos specifically of Scott's cottage up in Point of Barrel, which he's restored from, I think it was 1906 or 1904 that this cottage was built and then he's restored it over the last several years. You can go to my website at www.com rewinddesign.ca to check out all of those photos. Thank you so much as always for listening and if you love the podcast please share it with your family and friends, follow along on Spotify or Apple Music, and give us five stars. All right and that's all. Thank you so much everyone. Enjoy this week's episode. We're officially live. Great. So I just want to first of all say just a big thank you so much for allowing me to speak with you and to have this open conversation. And I've been looking forward to meeting you for a while. So thank you so much for welcoming me into your home. We're sitting in Cabbage Town, kind of not quite downtown Toronto, but in Scott's home. And yes, very excited to speak to him. So I guess just generally, it would be great if we can just say who you are and where we are right now. Okay, um, well, Katie, welcome. Uh, it's great <laughs> to finally meet you as well. We've we've been, uh, I guess, chatting through other people for quite some time. I know. Um, so so thanks for coming. Uh, and uh, um, we're so we're in Cabbage Town. Uh, my partner and I bought this house back uh, in maybe fifteen years ago, uh, and it was it was one of the worst houses in in Toronto at that point. It had been sandblasted, it had termite damage, and uh, really wanted a project to try to understand the process uh, from an owner's perspective uh, of, of this, uh, uh, this sometimes challenging process that we put clients through. So, mm-hmm. uh, so we rebuilt this, this uh, house a few times, um, part, partly ourselves, partly with contractors, and learned a lot through the process. Mm-hmm. So, so we're currently on our, our third renovation 
uh, in addition uh, to this this place that we've come to love. Mm-hmm. And right now we're sitting kind of in the back of the house in this like beautifully lit room with windows on the west side. And you said that this is a new addition this year. And yes, so this this and the room above and the room below, uh, we started this project uh, just before COVID hit. So we, okay. we um, Great time. Uh, yeah, so we had contractors in the house all the way through COVID, which was really fascinating. Sure, that was really reassuring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. But all, all going well. Mm-hmm. So this ties really directly into what you actually do for a living. So maybe you can describe what it is you actually do for your profession. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm one of... Uh, Uh, Five partners at uh, ERA Architects. Uh, We're a heritage architecture and planning firm in Toronto. And uh, I guess our central office is in Toronto. We also have an office in Ottawa, another office in in Montreal. Mm -hmm. Um, We have staff who live in Port Hope and uh, Calgary uh, and Vancouver. Uh, So our our work is really spread across Canada. We... um, uh, we're about 130 people. Uh, there's architects, mostly architects, uh, maybe one third planners. Uh, we've got, you know, a lawyer, uh, some interior design um, uh, experts. Uh, and uh, our approach really is, is we're interested in culture. We're interested in, in what, uh, what the context is that we work within, which is Toronto and a number of other places. Uh, and we want to, we want to really um, try to, work on uh, altering, make, making alterations that um, bring culture forward, that, mm-hmm. that uh, help uh, buildings uh, be sustainable for another 100 years, uh, that um, bring life back to uh, places that, that have, um, have really lost their, um, uh, their sparkle. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so we, we work a lot with um, white elephant type buildings like Maple Leaf Gardens. Uh, Casey House is another project that was a fairly derelict mansion on on um, Jarvis Street that um, has now been incorporated into a, a, a rebuild that uh, uh, is now an AIDS hospice on uh, facing on Jarvis Street. Uh, there's a number of of pieces like that 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 we're either working for developers or working for for cultural organizations to try to help architecture better serve the city that, or the places it's in. Wow, <laughs> that's such an amazing position and role to be in like I can imagine that would be really fulfilling as well and it's the only place I wanted to work uh, so yes. I've been there for 23 years uh, mm. um, back then they were there were about 10 people in mm. in the office in Toronto uh, and um, I, I I asked for an interview um, they interviewed me and they said very nice to meet you but we're not hiring uh, and um, so I came back a little bit later and, and begged. Uh, and you were they, resilient. They fi- yeah, yeah, they finally hired me. Uh, I'm sure they're very happy that they hired you <laughs> since now you've been there 23 years, right? It's, so, it's fine. Yeah, no, I'm sure they're, they're stoked to have you now. But um, that's incredible. So I guess a little bit more about your background. We talked about this briefly, briefly before, but you're from the Windsor, Detroit area. Yes. Yeah, so I was born in Toronto. I grew up in Windsor. Uh, my, we we uh, lived in a few different places, but Windsor was really home. We spent summers uh, in 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 a few places, but uh, the majority of, of time was was up in Muskoka, and uh, it was a you know a seven hour drive from Windsor to mm. to uh, to Muskoka yeah. in, in the back of a station wagon with no air conditioning because my dad didn't want to pay for the, Heard a the lot gas. Of these right? Stories, yeah. 
so it it, it uh, so that that area was had always captivated me, and uh, it, it was always in the back of my head that I I was just really interested in the, the Canadian Shield and that that region. Uh, I went to school in Ottawa at Carleton mm-hmm. for architecture school, and then the intent was always either we would go to Montreal or or go to Toronto, um, and Toronto. Uh, made a lot of sense uh, back in, in 2000 when we moved here mm-hmm. um, for a number of reasons. Uh, so I came here for work and, and loved it. Yeah. And I guess, so now that you work more in like this field of preservation and like salvage and re- reuse, how do you feel like, did you grow up having these ideas already? Did you, how did you personally get into this kind of mm-hmm. realm of design and, and knowing you wanted to kind of do that right off the hop. Yeah. Um, I would really credit my, my mother and my aunt in particular. Yeah. Uh, my, uh, I, I had very strong, uh, women in, in my family who were very design focused and they, they, um, when we would go anywhere, my mother would constantly be pointing out architectural details, making sure that we, uh, went off the beaten path to see something that she'd heard about. Uh, and, uh, we, we traveled, a relatively uh, large amount. When I was young, uh, my dad went on sabbatical at one point and we moved over to London. My parents used London as a as a place to see Europe. They took us to everything they could on the, on the weekends. And, when uh, you say London, you mean... London, UK. Okay, because yeah. I was like, you went to Europe from London, Ontario. I was just in a total Ontario vibe there, but London, England, Yeah, okay. <laughs> went to England. Uh, used, uh, so I was five at the time. Uh, my parents used that opportunity to uh, expose us to architecture as much as possible. Uh, some country houses, um, trips to Paris, trips to museums, uh, going across to um, Amsterdam just to, to make sure mm. that we got exposed to as much as they could in that year that we were there. Uh, and then growing up in Windsor, uh, people don't think of Windsor as being architecturally relevant or interesting. but. My my parents' place was about ten minutes from downtown Detroit, and downtown Detroit is a just a wealth of amazing architecture from from mm-hmm. all periods. And we would be in Detroit every week uh, for some something, um, and it was it was not terribly safe at that point. But driving through the city, uh, you could see great works of architecture from from the eighteen fifties on forward in in various states of preservation or ruin, and and. Uh, so I, I, I guess I grew up with this sense that, that architecture can be a wonderful thing, but it's very precarious and it can disappear. Because uh, throughout my uh, childhood, things that I loved in Detroit, every year one of them would be gone. Yeah. There'd be, either be a fire or it'd been demolished for a parking lot or something. Mm-hmm. So it, it seemed like a very tenuous thing. It seemed like something that does need to be thought about and protected. Uh, and the assumption has, has been in places like Detroit that um, whatever will replace it will be better because in many cases with with a, a very wealthy city that that can be the case that the next thing that's built is more considered has a higher budget and and uh, you know is is uh, more interesting but but uh, um, that's not always not always not the case. always the case mm-hmm. yeah so that's yeah that's amazing background from you and it's amazing to hear that you had kind of influential women in your life that's just. That's so nice too, because I also feel like my inspiration for my design side of things was from my mom too, mm. because she also studied interior design and practice. Okay. Yeah. So mm. that's kind of what influenced me. But in terms of like preserving and more like the historical stuff, she 
is such a huge proponent of reusing and repurposing. And I always grew up with that, like everywhere mm. in our house, like not just for the home, but for like recycling. And, and she was, she was composting before composting was yeah, a thing. So yeah. mm. I feel like I was always really aware of these types of things too. So I would credit my mom as well for, mm-hmm. for all of the, the ways I think about things now, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I'm really grateful for. Mm. So I was hoping to jump a little bit into the projects that you work on at ERA. Yeah. So I have a bunch of questions about that. How do you manage historical projects and kind of right in the beginning, how do you, how do you decide what's viable to keep versus what cannot be kept like right in the beginning? How do you, how do you say, Hey, we've got this project in this building. Is it possible to keep it? How do, how do you, how do you start Mm -hmm. from that? (laughs) Yeah, you have to, I think consistently what we try to do is, is um, understand as much as we can about the, about the site, about um, how it's changed over the years, what, what the original intent was, or what the layers of intent have yeah. been over the years. Uh, because sometimes it's, it, the first rendition of a, of a site may not be the most interesting or relevant. Um, it's, it's useful to, to try to understand everything you can. So that then when you're, when you're looking at the building or looking at the, whatever it is that you're dealing with, you have an understanding of what, why things were done the way they were. And uh, from there, be able to start to make decisions about, about what, what would be useful to bring forward and to, to try to incorporate into the new project. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and obviously condition, it plays a huge factor in, in what's going to be able to be salvaged. Yeah. Uh, in, in many of our projects here, uh, a lot of uh, conservation work is driven by development, and, and with development, uh, there are requirements uh, through heritage designations that certain things need to be preserved no matter what condition they're in. So in those cases... And what would so, those types of things be? Uh, so if we're talking about development, often there's the exterior of the building uh, from side. three sides might be protected, but nothing else might be protected. So the, the developers are required to keep the facade, but not required necessarily to keep anything inside. Mm-hmm. When we're dealing with private clients uh, who, who are, are, are doing a project for themselves, not as part of a development, then they might be more attached to aspects of being in a space uh, and, and things, you know, views that they like or fireplace or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they want to um, incorporate some of those things that are, are valuable to them, uh, but significantly overhaul how how comfortable it is uh whether the kitchen works um if it that, functions that, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah okay that's so cool um yeah i've definitely seen a lot of buildings downtown toronto where you're like oh you've literally just taken everything out of the building and left the facade it's mm-hmm. supported and you just drive by and you're like oh wow that's that is interesting to, to see that, that. Yeah, many, many, I guess th- th- where that's really resulting from is many of these buildings were, were designed, uh, the exterior envelope, or maybe even just one or two sides of the exterior envelope were a designed element, mm-hmm. and the interior may have just been a, a very functional thing. Yeah. Um, so I think where, how, how the uh, protections have evolved in a place like Toronto uh, they they've really evolved around um, what's what's the public good what's the public space how do you protect the public space and so in in protecting those front elevations um, there uh, the heritage boards are, are are trying to preserve something some memory of what the what the urban uh, 
street felt like. Uh, mm-hmm. They're less concerned with what the interior right. might have been. Whereas I'm like, I care about the interior Everything. too. <laughs> right. um, so in terms of the heritage boards in Toronto, can you just give like a little bit of an explanation of that? Because I know you mentioned the specifically Cabbage Town, but yeah. I'm not as familiar with the Toronto heritage community. Mm-hmm. So um, before we jump more into the, the cottage country area, which we'll jump into next... Um, can you just explain like how sure. these heritage boards maybe work generally? Yeah, there's a so there's a department of planning um, at the city of Toronto called Heritage Preservation Services that oversees uh, change and and uh, alterations through the city um, as it affects heritage fabric of the city. Uh, and uh, uh, if something is designated or or listed on the heritage register, then any changes uh, to that site need to get approved by um, Heritage Preservation Services. So uh, they they have a um, an overseeing role. Uh, there's also the Preservation Board, which is a um, a uh, group made up of volunteers who um, reports to council. And they'll they'll um, outside of city planning, they'll review um, demolitions and and major alterations to to buildings as well, and make a recommendation to council separately. And what defines what is historically um, like allowed to be or historically designated amongst these boards. Yeah, the city <laughs> the city will produce a report um, that that uh, goes through the the reasons for designation, and they'll list out this elevation, the windows, the oh, uh, very the specifically. Okay. Yeah, and then that that uh, designation will stop at a certain point on the building. Okay, so for example, in this house we're in now. What were some of the things that they would have said you have to keep? Anything that's visible from the street or okay. from the public uh, area. So we have a we have a lane out and back, mm-hmm. which is which is one of the um, uh, points that has to be considered, uh, and then the the front street, the street. So anything okay. that you can see from the street is is reviewed by the city. Okay, so for example, like if you wanted to change a color or change out windows or color's not really a problem okay. um, in in this heritage conservation district. Windows are, are one of the uh, one of the aspects that it's, it's difficult to change. Mm-hmm. Um, in other HCDs like like uh, um, Rosedale, um, it's a little bit easier to make changes to buildings because that heritage conservation district is about trying to foster excellence in architecture, which could be contemporary architecture. Okay. In in Cabbagetown, most of the buildings are within thirty years of each other, and they're trying to preserve a that era, an intact era. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes that makes a lot more sense now. Yeah, I feel like there's there's so many different areas and types that I'm like I'm a little lost with all of the like the preservation stuff and what the rules are, but mm-hmm. I I definitely approve and think it's amazing. So if we are to jump a little bit more into the cottage area mm-hmm. I know that you've always been a cottager kind of growing up you said you were in Muskoka and then more recently you have you have your own cottage now in Point of Barrel correct? yes okay so you're a, a you're a true cottager yourself you love the area I, I grew up going to um we we never had our own cottage uh okay. when I was growing up uh we we went to my, my parents were we were involved in a um a church called the Plymouth Brethren Okay. which is sort of like an Anglo version of Bennonites. Uh, okay. And we would go yes. to a, um, a place that was uh, near near Torrance. Oh, okay, um, okay. But uh, kind of in the Torrance Barrens mm-hmm. on, on a chain of lakes that it connects into Lake Muskoka. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and part of that time, um, some of that time was without electricity. Most I, I learned to canoe as, as soon as I learned to swim. 
we, we, we were, there were 300 acres surrounded by crown land. So uh, constantly hiking. And I, I became very, uh, that, that was a, a slightly more isolated version of cottaging than, than, uh, than I have now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, full rain now. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I mean, I've always loved sailing and kayaking and canoeing as Muskoka got more built up. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess I, I came across point of barrel, when I was 16, I was on a, a canoe trip from Killarney down to uh, Moon River, mm-hmm. and we, we came through Point of Barrel at one point, and came through, I think, what the part that really was etched in my mind was there's an area called Painted Rocks up at, at Bayfield Inlet, yeah. and I, I just had never experienced anything like that. It was, it was so shockingly beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, it, that never left my mind. So I guess a number of years later, when I joined ERA, uh, I noticed on one of the senior partners' desks at that point, uh, there was a, an RFP for um, the Ojibwe Club. Yes. And, and uh, uh, I, I said, that's, that's the Ojibwe Club at, at Point Barrow. What's, what's happening with that? And he said, I, I, don't, I don't know what this is. It's somewhere north of the city a few hours. Uh, but if you want to take a look at it, take a look. And You're so like, give it to me. <laughs> So I wrenched it off of his desk, yeah. and um, we um, we were invited for interviews. I think there were four or five firms being considered, and uh, but I I managed to bring Edwin along to becoming passionate about Point of Barrel, mm-hmm. uh, and we and, did. And sorry, Edwin's like the head of he was he, he was at the time. Yeah, he's now retired, yeah. but he was he was Edwin Rose Architects. Yes. was he was the the. Um, the first architect at the, at the firm. Um, but we, we worked with um, Ojibwe for, that was back in 2000. Uh, we worked with them for a couple of years to uh, study their site, try to help them, or help work through with them uh, what was architecturally significant about the buildings, what was a later accretion that might be distracting, um, how to plan to, uh, you know, sh- the, one of the questions was, should they keep the buildings? Uh, were they dangerous? Uh, mm. So many of these big hotel buildings had, had burned with yeah, loss like of life. <laughs> yeah, the, almost all of them. Yeah. But we, um, through this, this process, we, we helped, you know, work through with them that, that the, the buildings, at least the main building was significant. Some of the other buildings were less interesting and possibly could be altered. Some of the rest of them were, were quite interesting but needed um, quite a bit of change to make them more convenient and work for what they needed. Uh, there were some missing buildings that could get rebuilt uh, and help them through the process of uh, they decide to designate the, the site as a heritage site. Through, I guess, two reports that we did for them, we set a plan in place that they could then raise money in and uh, do the repairs that they did. Mm-hmm. I took a brief look at the reports because I found them on the Ojibwe Historical oh, yeah. okay, Preservation Society website when mm-hmm. I was looking through all of this. But yeah, I loved like their purpose. I just wrote down kind of their like main purpose statement here was like to restore, preserve, protect those structures in the Point of Barrel area designated as historically and architecturally significant mm-hmm. so i just found that really interesting that they were so passionate about this because they were built in like 1906 right yeah and so right. i just i think it's just absolutely insane how these structures first of all can last this long mm-hmm. and i'm sure you saw them in a very different state than what it is now after all of the restoration work but that west wind is strong. It is. It's a rugged, rugged area. It's mm-hmm. very exposed. It's it's like it's it's a totally different world out there. Mm-hmm. So for me, just I'm like, how? This is my whole fascination with this. It's like, how did the how are these buildings still here and, mm-hmm. and surviving? But these are kind of the questions I'm like, when you went to assess 
assess these buildings? Like, what were some of the things that actually stood the test of time versus what was really deteriorating? Mm-hmm. We found we found some consistent uh, uh, issues with the sites, and we found some consistent details that would really help them survive. You know, if you look at something like the Ojibwe Club and some of the other early buildings before the railway arrived, mm-hmm. ra- the railway arrived in Point of Barrel in 1908. Up until then, the the connection was steamship. Yes. Steamship so road. so you're, so this Ojibwe Club was built pre train yes. to the area. Correct. Okay. So, so That's significant. <laughs> the, yeah, so the club being built in, in uh, 1906, or at least the, the start of the mm-hmm. building construction, uh, meant that, that um, whatever was going to be incorporated into that building either had to come by ship mm-hmm. or, or it had to be found from the site or, or come from salvage. Uh, and I think the, the Bellevue Hotel, uh, which is, is still standing mm-hmm. in, in a changed form, mm-hmm. but the first Bellevue Hotel was assembled out of salvage from a shipwreck oh cool I yeah so that's that. the foundation of, okay. of architecture at, at uh, point of barrel was was this approach to trying to find things you know scrounge yes. around find things use what you can and that's a very consistent um georgian bay approach yes yeah. and like that's still true today mm-hmm. people still do that and i love that so much and like dave uh, Valentine yeah. was also saying that they they salvage everything possible when they're taking anything down and right. like they reuse anything they possibly can because first of all it's so hard to get material out there yeah so you just have to be extremely resourceful mm-hmm. which is appreciated well that's one of the things about it, even even now even with the highway even with you mm-hmm. know the train and access and whatever still have to you still have there. to vote it out there and it's <laughs> yeah. going to have to come out in some you know even the largest boats uh well the barges can get major things out but but really to get to some of the some of the sites like like mine it would be tough to to bring in uh so to get things to my cottage mm-hmm. um you need to bring things by boat for 10 minutes out into the into the bay you load it from the boat onto a dock mm-hmm. uh there's a fairly steep set of uh cliffs that you have to meander your way up onto to get to the cottage so it's a even you know, even once you get it to the site, you have to get across this train. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so, so yeah, so the origin of, I guess, of, of construction at Point of Barrel uh, was, was really about trying to salvage, trying to use something local. Uh, and they, um, we, we've come to describe some of the details as structurally hopeful where, where, you know, you're underbuilding uh, just because you only have so many structural members, you only have so many um, uh, rafters and so on that you can use, so you, you just spread it out as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the repairs that we're doing now are, are, are about trying to uh, stabilize things that, that were a little bit underbuilt. We also found that foundations were, um, uh, they would start a building based right on the highest point of land okay. and then and then build the floor plate up from there so one one point of the floor plate uh would be sitting directly on the rock and probably would by 100 years later would be rotted out right um so that was a pretty typical thing that we found on all buildings and what would they make the foundations out of um logs and yeah the logs would sit on on you know a pool of water or something so i think that's what dave is saying is like all these like hand hewn yeah. giant logs he's like they're pretty good yeah but yeah but at a certain point so in terms of like the actual building techniques what what were the ways that they were building in 1906 mm-hmm. like actually constructing the build so Mostly wood. Um, the for fireplaces, uh, a lot of the early fireplaces are made of brick, which would come as oh. ballast on on steamships. 
So the steamships would come north uh, with, with bricks in their holds, and then the bricks would be offloaded and fish would get loaded on and be taken back south. Okay. So That's so, so interesting. It is, isn't it? That makes so, then, so much sense. So then after, you know, my, my cottage is, is 1908, 1909, just as the transition um, was happening where the, where the railway arrived. Um, so our fireplace is a combination of brick and stone. Uh, and you find a transition after that. Generally, things move toward uh, stone because stone would there'd be more craftsmen around. Uh, you could you could bring things in a little bit easier. Um, the boats were a little bit better, um, and more flexible. And there's so much stone. Yeah, and there's so much stone. There's so a lot. it's like it's it's like a resource available to you right there, plentiful. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of like actually the style that people were building in, is there kind of a trend or like how 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 did they determine what the style was going to be like was mm-hmm. there kind of a standard style that that they were building over and over or did, mm-hmm. it, did it depend where people were coming from and what influenced them from where they were from or yeah it's <laughs> it's it's interesting i've been puzzling over this uh, myself um, if you go to the caribbean uh you know the west indies has very similar architecture to the the islands in point of barrel um, mm. If you go to uh, a number of colonial French outposts, uh, they have a, a similar architecture. There's a, a and one of the the things that I've I've come to understand is um, in places like Martinique, for example, um, there there's continually the threat that a hurricane's going to come. Um, and so, how do you deal with these gale force winds that that may rip your roof off? And the way they were handling this was was trying to have the buildings hug the ground, mm. not having very deep overhangs, um, probably uh, um, ways of, of sheltering, you know, layers and layers of, of things like porches that would shelter you from the sun and from the wind. Uh, and and the build out at Point of Barrel um, and, and Georgian Bay, really, where, where you get these gale force winds coming in from the west, um, is, a, is a very similar approach functionally, yeah. was, was trying to protect these buildings from from uh, the the storms that they knew would come. Because they're plentiful and powerful. Yes. It's <laughs> yes. like when you see kind of a thunderstorm rolling over the bay, it's really scary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, it then, uh, yeah. and it's why we're there. <laughs> and it's why we're there. Yeah, I love I love Georgian Bay so much. I can't even, mm-hmm. can't even describe. So I guess in terms of there are several projects that ERA has worked on in Point of Barrel area so i've kind of listed a few here um the ojibwe club being a a big huge one (laughs) um and then i know you did um dave's cottage as well dave our friend dave valentine and um i've listed i don't know like six other places that you've that you've worked on up there in varying you know like sizes and um, styles. So I know there was one like a mid-century, mid-century retreat and off-grid island cottage. These are just from the website I was yeah. looking at this morning. Um, but just in terms of these projects that you've actually worked on, how do you navigate the project when you're working on an island? Like what do you find are the pros and cons of, of working on an island versus working on something historical mm-hmm. in the city mm-hmm. or challenges with me? Yeah. 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 We, well, we've, we've done... I, I was I was actually trying to tally in my head. I think we've done about thirty or forty cottages um, on on the islands of the archipelago. You've done that many? Yeah, and they're they, oh they're not always new builds yeah. or or major uh, projects. Often they're they're minor interventions uh-huh. trying to trying to build 
to allow for multiple generations to use a single site. Okay. Add, adding bunkies, uh, you know, doing a, a major alteration to convenience in a in an existing cottage or something. Okay. Uh, and we've we've really learned from people like Dave Ballantyne, um, who have been working there for for a long time, mm-hmm. um, how to how to manage. Um, uh, the specificity of, of working on island properties, uh, you really do need to think about all the way through the project that something, someone has to carry this thing from a boat up to the cottage uh, and lug it into the boat and, and that has to be delivered somehow. Um, and once you, once you get it there, how are they going to hoist it into place? So that, that really determines what your architecture can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it, it influences uh, a lot of decisions early on. And then there, there's also a, there's a, um, expectation that things need to be able to manage the uh, the weather uh, that that hits uh, on Georgian Bay, um, so we've we've tailored our material palette uh, yes. for that to to help the building survive over the course of the winter um, when when people aren't there. We always also make an assumption that there may be some year or two years when uh, someone's died, the building's being contested, uh, mm-hmm. no one's going up, and there's no maintenance being done, uh, and. Uh, can we design a building that is going to um, hopefully, you know, survive relatively well during a, a period of neglect and be able to bounce back? And can you elaborate just a little bit on the types of materials that you, you would suggest in, in this mm-hmm. sort of Georgian Bay um, environment? Yeah, so we, we rarely use drywall. Uh, I, don't, I can't think of any places on, uh, on in, in the cottages where we've used drywall. We tend to yeah. use materials that can move and change. Um, so if something, we like to use things that are repairable. Uh, if if um, uh, if if something were to leak, then then can you take something apart and put it back together, and it, it's going to be you know be able to survive relatively well. Mm-hmm. Um, we do like using uh, wood. We like using a lot of salvage material. Um, with with uh, with our place, um, we uh, uh, we had to take part of it down because it had been uh, abandoned for twenty years, and part of it was the cottage. The sorry, yes. our cottage. Uh, we had to rebuild um, about a, a third of it or half of it. Uh, and we were at that point. We had a friend who had a cottage on um, Rosso uh, that she had just sold, and it was being taken down. So okay. we were able to go to her house, salvage a number of things that were contemporary to our our yeah. building, and bring them in and, and incorporate them. Yeah, oh, I love that. That's amazing. That's talking a bit more about the um, interior materials. Mm-hmm. But what about the exterior, like siding, roofing materials? Mm-hmm. What would you suggest in these cases? We use a lot of metal roofing, yeah, um, like steel. just a steel that, that can be anchored down well. Um, we often are do an insulated envelope on top of the existing roof. Um, I like to work with um, the, uh, in, in many cases, uh, a lot of these rustic buildings have interesting roofing boards and rafters that were exposed as part of the, the interior. Oh, okay. And, and so we try to retain a lot of that if we can. So if we're insulating a building, we'll try to come on the outside of that. Uh, so that you can keep some of the 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 old wood, um, right? Like feeling. the exposed rafters and right. inside, yeah. And then for the for the siding, we tend to we, we tend to go with. Um, uh, I, it really depends. Um, there, there's a lot of options out there. Uh, it really depends on whether what someone's tastes are. We can mm-hmm. we can move in a number of different directions. Mm-hmm. Like the style, like the actual um, like sizing and, and yeah. If we're if we're working on an existing site. Um, one of the things that we'll try to do is, is um, tie it in with the other buildings that are, are, are there, um, either match the palette of materials and the color that they're going with and, and try to just make a, a 
a composition that a works unified together. front for all right. your buildings yes yeah especially if you're adding like bunkies to a generational mm-hmm. cottage and you want everything to look a bit more consistent and in tune with maybe the era that that original cottage was built in mm-hmm. yeah that's really cool and so yours your specific cottage um you said it was neglected for 20 years yeah um our, this cottage uh called baronsbury <clears throat> was built in uh I think it, it they, they think it was about 1908 1909 uh, the original family still owned it um, and one of the things that happens with with these older cottages is if um, if there is deferred maintenance deferred maintenance can really get away from you if, if you let it go on for a few years mm-hmm. and I think uh, with with this place by you know by 2010 it I think or sorry by 2000 it had, it had become unusable uh, due to deferred maintenance and then uh, it was closed up at that point and then it just, it just got worse. So the parts of the building that uh, had steeper roofs survived a little better. The parts that had more shallow roofs, um, the roofs leaked and, and uh, the structure started to deteriorate. But it's, it's a building that, that I've been boating by for 20 years and I always liked it. Yeah. Uh, and um, so when it came on the, on the market, it was uh, really compelling. And then how did that process happen for you to be able to purchase it? Like... I think we talked about this before when we were talking on the phone, but you mentioned you, yeah, like you'd driven past it a lot. You really loved it. And then were you the only bidder? Was it, were people looking to buy it or was it kind of like, Ooh, well, this was, no one this wants was, to buy uh, this. so this was in 2000. It, it, it came on the market, I think in the summer of 2000 point of barrel and, and uh, the archipelago generally has uh, maybe it's 60% Canadian and 40% American. Yes. Uh, the Americans weren't allowed in at that point. Um, so uh, this came on the market. Someone else may have been interested in it uh, from from the States, but... but uh, The pool uh, was smaller then. The, the pool was much smaller. And, and so it came it came on the market. It was, it's a very, it was a very tricky building to work with uh, because it was in, in such uh, poor condition. Um, uh, so there, there weren't a lot of people interested in taking it on. I think a, a number of people have always liked it, but... Uh, but no one else was a big challenge though to take on something like that yeah but it was a you know it was a fun project that I I wanted to embark on and we'd been looking at at Pointe Barrel for a few years so this was this was a good opportunity and then how long do you think it took you to kind of plan and decide what to keep and what to update and that whole process yeah uh I guess it was it was maybe a few months of uh we we shifted a number of things around on the interior um, and changed the layout to be more convenient. Uh, that was probably about four months of, of testing things out uh, to come to a final scheme and then and then you know producing the final drawings was uh, a couple months in there. Um, thankfully, uh, Dave Valentine was our contractor. Um, he <laughs> bought into the idea of, of the project, um, and uh, we had uh, workers from his team uh um doing uh demo and and a number of the early uh parts of the project while we were still designing so we were able to move the project along before we had the design finalized and then uh start start building once when things were ready and how long do you think that whole process might have taken probably two years Yeah. yeah yeah in total we had to bring in power um we didn't have a septic system Oh my goodness. Uh, there, there was really nothing salvageable uh, from the interior of, of uh, um, other than the, the main central room, uh, which was fairly intact. Uh, the, most of the rest of the house need, needed significant um, 
rebuilding or alteration. Mm-hmm. And like windows and things, were they okay? Or The windows in the front were okay. Um, some of the windows, uh, I collected up the, um, the original windows, I would say a quarter of them were usable uh, and we reused them on the on the side that we were retaining the mm-hmm. you know those window openings um, the front was was all pretty good mm-hmm. and can you maybe just like describe from the outside what your cottage looks like for people that are listening yeah so it's a um, it looks like a, a Creole New Orleans cottage uh, it, it is a symmetrical building has two dormers on on the roof it's got a, a very low pitched roof um very classic shape <laughs> yeah classic georgian bay um classic even even muskoka it's just a, a classic old cottage mm-hmm. not terribly big it's about two thousand square feet uh in total uh there's on the front there's a central set of doors with four windows so two banks of windows on either side um there's a full length 50 foot long um screen porch on the front uh, and uh, the roof, if, if you know what a hip roof is, there's a, a hip roof around the whole building, kind of symmetrically wrapping it with a, a gabled roof on top of that. Uh, and it, uh, um, so from the side, it, it really looks like a, a Creole um, cottage from somewhere in the West Indies. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the front, it, it looks like a, a, a typical um, turn of the century um, Muskoka and Georgian Bay cottage. That was the best cottage description I've ever heard. <laughs> Usually I ask people to describe their cottages and they're not architects. They say it's blue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not architects, so they have it's it's yeah, that they don't quite have that level of detail in their mm. description, so thank you. <laughs> people will be definitely be able to picture that one. Just looping into this like style of architecture and point of barrel. Um, we've already talked a little bit about the styles of building Mm -hmm. and the building methods. And maybe if we can jump back into some of these projects you've restored, what are, again, some of the things that are more likely to, you're more likely to survive and keep, you said Mm -hmm. like foundations and things. And then what are things that you really need to like replace over time that just like haven't lasted? Mm -hmm. You know, often the, the, the roof system needs to be rethought. So mm-hmm. even even if you were to replace the original roof roof cladding with with something similar, it might never work. Um, so mm-hmm. there's some details like that that just have never worked, and we have to completely rethink them. Um, we uh, um, we usually do some amount of insulating, so that may involve overcladding the building on the exterior. Um, uh, with um, I mean, I guess with things that we're trying to incorporate, we try to find what's special about the place and and what what speaks to people Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of the really early buildings you know there's there's a there's an architecture that is local to uh georgian bay um that was was about this romanticism of the wilderness and romanticism of of an indigenous life yes uh and you know if you look at something like point of barrel um the uh the shawanaga first nation you know they're they're deeply involved in in the building um, mm-hmm. construction industry now uh, they were deeply involved in the construction industry back then and and places like the Ojibwe Club were named that way because Americans and North Americans were were so um, they were romanticizing um, uh, uh, First Nations culture mm-hmm. um, so when you look at a, at, at old, the oldest buildings at Point of Barrel, there's often um, an, a, you know an intentional rusticity to remind people that they're in this this land that's a little bit more wilderness. Uh, so yeah. log railings, um, you know, leaving the bark on, uh, yes. birch bark panels on the on the walls, um, twig work, uh, a lot of incorporation of, of First Nations art, 
artworks like uh, um, uh, birch bark with porcupine quills. Um, mm-hmm. So it, you can you can look at a lot of these older cottages and say, you know, that was made by um, by uh, a, a a nation from Mantulan, and that that was brought right. in and sold at the Ojibwe Club as as um, as uh, tourist you know um, items, and it, like all these layers and layers of things mm-hmm. are at, at Point Barrel. Yeah, um, I heard or I was reading in the on the um, OHPS site that this was known as like the Great Camp Movement of people, yeah. of mainly American um, upper class peoples coming to this area and developing these camps that they would come to year after year. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it totally makes sense that they were trying to maintain more of these rustic structures um, because they were kind of escaping their city life and coming up right. here for, for months. And Many um, people who, could co- who were coming here had options as to where they could go. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and you, could, you could go to a, a more citified um, summer experience if you wanted that. This and wasn't this, it. So to get yeah. to, to Georgian <laughs> Bay from Cleveland or, or somewhere like that um, was was a substantial hike and you had to make that decision that that was where you wanted to go. And they wanted this more rustic experience. Right. Like this is what people were actually Striving searching for. for. So yeah. yeah. And I also had written down that like their decoration was by means of rough woodwork, bark being left in, in place and the means of uncut stone. Like mm-hmm. r- everything was like r- this rural character. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's great that you mentioned that too. But yeah, um, Yes, we've been talking for a while, so I just want to uh, maybe wrap up with a few things. So I guess generally, what would you say are the benefits of restoring an old building versus tearing something down and building new? Mm -hmm. Like What what is the main driving force for wanting to do that? Mm -hmm. That's a loaded question. Yeah. So, I mean, I I enjoy working with old buildings. Um, One of the things that I I like about uh, working with, with things like, for example, first growth wood uh is that something is is like that is repairable so mm-hmm. if you're if you're yeah. looking at an old set of windows um usually the, at this point they're leaky um something may be broken uh there may be some rot uh but if you make that repair on on something that incorporates first growth wood uh then probably it's going to last for another hundred years and mm-hmm. so there's a there's a sustainability aspect to that uh there's also a a um Kind of texture and architectural interest uh, layer to it for me. I, I'm really interested in um, the uh, being able to see the hand of the builder and and these de- decisions that were made over the years. Um, they're they're really interesting um, uh, approaches to a, to experiencing a site. Um, and if you can engage with those decisions that were made by someone who loved the place before you did, then then you're going to benefit from from their decisions. Mm-hmm. So um, there's there's a, I guess a number of layers to to why why we do this um sometimes it it uh uh it makes significant architectural sense to to incorporate something sometimes it's a herculean effort that that uh um maybe more about nostalgia yeah yeah so it's definitely like like a teeter-totter of pros and cons for that Mm -hmm. and then i guess what are ways that if we are having to say like listen this building just is beyond repair we cannot salvage this building we need to take it down what are ways if you are building new what are ways you incorporate the the building to be just more of a sustainable build generally i know that um in terms of materiality it's always better to build with like the best quality materials and durability in mind because we want these new structures to last hundreds of years if we're building something from the ground up new but what are other ways that you would say 
in a new build that are are really beneficial to it, like enduring a long time. Mm-hmm. I think it has to it has to really respond culturally to the place that it's in. Um, it has to be relevant. That uh, we we have to make sure that the things that we're building um, are are resilient in in many mm-hmm. ways. So so they they have to deal with climate change. They have to um, deal with with what the the society might need 20 years from now so you, you really have to think through really forward thinking yeah here. <laughs> you have to think through like what what is this going what impact is this going to have on the on the place that you live mm. um and and is it going to stay relevant, relevant yeah. and then what the way you're building it is that sustainable does that achieve the goals that the client wants mm-hmm. um and and make sure that what you're resulting in what you what is resulting um is um, is better or is, is more um, suitable than, than what was there. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, like energy that's being put into the build versus energy that's like the building itself will be using over mm-hmm. this time. Like these are all things that when we're building new, it's especially in this like era of climate change, it's so important as well to think about the types of energy that we're using um, and how we can maybe use the sun's passive energy right. a little bit more in our builds and I think there's just so many ways moving forward if we are having to build new mm-hmm. um, that we can build um, more consciously as yeah, well. Yeah, we've, we've done... Uh, I, one of the nice things about working in, in recreational properties is that people are willing to... or interested in experimenting a little bit more with, with options. Uh, so we've, we've done a number of off-grid cottages. Mm-hmm. Um, solar is becoming more and more practical. Uh, you can do uh, many more things with solar than you, you could do uh, 10, 20 years ago. Um, so we can we can really build out um, a uh, a fairly functional building um, without tying into the power grid now um, with most conveniences. So it's becoming easier and easier to uh, build sustainably for um, cottage projects. Yeah, and I think just the last question before we wrap things up here is just um, what do you love the most about cottage country? Mm. Or um, maybe three things. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I guess the rock uh, has always um, really captured my heart. Um, I like the headspace that people are in when, when, when they, they go. Uh, there's a, um, a relaxed, casual um, approach to life that is, is uh, unique to being uh, um, up, up there. Um, I also love being... Uh, one of the things I like about cottages uh, versus other types of travel is, is that um, often you're you're in a, a building with you know six or eight friends who you don't spend you don't normally spend that much time with. So you you go you have dinner with them. You all go to sleep. You wake up in the morning. You go through another day, uh, and then you go through another day. And mm-hmm. and it's, it, you you get to know people in ways that you never would um, in your in your social life otherwise. And that's so true because my cottage community in the South Channel of um, Perry Sound, like Georgian Bay. Um, we come from so many different places from different walks of birth, different Mm -hmm. ages. There's people from Toronto. There's people from the States, a Mm -hmm. lot of people from Ohio, um, people from just like different parts of Ontario. And we would never know each other if it weren't for the cottage community. Mm -hmm. But then once we're all there together, we have a really strong community and we have like lobster boils together and like big events. And um, I've never felt like more of a sense of community than I do at at the cottage and you just really get to know people in these four months that you spend there in the summer when everyone's off and um it's just I find it very magical that's how I usually describe Georgian Bay I love it so much but 
Yeah. Any closing words, anything you'd like to share? Where can we find you? If we, um, want, to, if we want to look for you. Yeah. So, uh, Scott, Weir, I'm at, uh, ERA architects, uh, and, um, I have an Instagram. I've forgotten what my hand is. <laughs> I can um, add it in if you want, <laughs> if you want to follow along on his adventures too. But again, I just wanted to say a huge thank you, um, to Scott you have just a wonderful company that you work for. You have great ideas, just a really great outlook on the world and travel and architecture and environment. And I just feel very connected to you and all of these ideas. So just thank you so much for well, being you. part this of was, this. This was really fun to talk to you about this. Yes, thank you so much. Just a note to say thank you so much to the King Family Bursary and the Georgian Bay Land Trust who have funded season two of Rewind Design. Thank you so, so much for listening to this week's episode. I so appreciate every single listener that tunes in, every single reader that reads the blog, rewinddesign.ca. The best thing you can do for me to support me in this journey is to either follow along on Spotify, Apple Music, or whichever platform you listen to. Click that follow button. The second best thing you can do is share this podcast to your friends and family. If anyone you know might be interested, just forward this along to them and tell them to take a take a listen or take a peek at my website. And if you're interested in supporting me further, I also have a Patreon account where you can donate $5 a month to the podcast and a portion of that will also go to the Georgian Bay Land Trust and that is patreon.com slash rewind design. No pressure to do any of that. I am just so happy if you're listening to this and if you love Cottage Country and Georgian Bay and Muskoka as much as I do. So thank you again so much and stay tuned for another episode in three weeks. Bye!